Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today my guest is writer, educator, and sound designer, Josh Srago. I've really been looking forward to speaking with him because he's worked in many different areas of the audio industry, and I'm hoping he can help me understand how the world works. So Josh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, if you hear little scurrying sounds in the background, it is because we are at my place and the cats are attacking each other viciously. Uh, so Josh, for my first question, I just want to find out, how did you get your first job in audio? My first job in audio was with a company called JK Sound, uh, an event production company in San Francisco. <clears throat> I was going to San Francisco State, and I had just started the audio program there, the Becca program. And uh, one of my classmates was working for JK, and I talked about you know wanting to get more field experience and wanting to get out there. And he said, "Well, you know, why don't you come on in? Money's not good. The hours suck, but." You get hands-on equipment, uh, hands-on time with the gear, and you get to play with it. So, I called up JK Sound. I came in for an interview, and it was basically overhire. So, I was one of the guys that would show up and haul speakers and wrap cable, and shows were beginning and shows were ending. And I think so. For people who don't know, I didn't know this for a long time, but and maybe I still don't know. But overhire is when um, it's not someone who's full time or part time. They just call you when they need you, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so I'd show up, I think it was getting paid $10 an hour to show up at 3 o'clock in the morning yeah. when a show is over and pull cables through puke and various other things because <laughs> JK's uh, forte was raves. So we were dealing with a lot of DJs and things like that. Uh, but that was my very first job in, in audio. Cool. Well, and I was going to ask you this later, but I'll go ahead and ask you now. Um, uh, what your experience was like at SF State, if you liked the program there? I loved the program. I really did. It's it's a unique program. Um, I've talked to a lot of people that have gone to Expressions. I've I've even met uh, Gary Platt, who's the founder of Expressions, and talked to him about it. A Expressions little bit. is a really popular school in the Bay Area in Emeryville. Yeah, they're uh, they're tied. A lot of people know Full Sail out in Florida. They're uh-huh. tied. Uh, Gary actually founded both. Oh, okay. So. Uh, Gary's a nice guy. Uh, his email address is actually uh, your pal Gary. It just <laughs> makes, always makes me laugh because he's he's a really cool guy. That's but cool. Um, I've talked to people that do that, and I've talked to people at Academy of Arts. And one of the things I found out about San Francisco State versus the other places is, and I found this out after the fact, was San Francisco State has a tendency to teach you sort of the methodologies behind everything. Uh, when I was going to San Francisco State, it was the, stu- the audio studio was in the basement in the broadcasting department. It was in disrepair. We always joked that we were the redheaded stepchild because the head of the department was a video guy. Hmm. So the TV guys got all the money, they got all this, whereas our studio was constantly broken. <laughs> so the one thing I really learned while I was at San Francisco State was signal flow because every day we came into the studio, something else would break and we had to figure <laughs> out how to get around it. So I learned Troubleshooting 101 from my very first day of functioning in a recording studio. And that has been just why I've continued to work in the industry, because I know how things interconnect, I know how they play together, and I know how to make them talk to one another. 
And that was the thing that San Francisco State really focused on wasn't so much here's an SSL console, here's a Neve console, here's uh, Pro Tools, here's Nuendo, whatever you're recording in, and you know, here's your various microphones. And it wasn't an instructor that just came in and said, this is where you're going to put it, this is where you always put it. It was somebody that came in and said, okay, let's put it here and let's see what we get. Okay, well, let's move it a little bit over here. Now, why would we get that difference? It was a lot of explanation as to why you wanted to do these types of things or why you wanted to play with it and experiment with the uh, situation in order to get uh, the best signal and the best sound. And uh, he really, f- uh, John Barsati, who's the head of the department, really forces his students to, to think about it. He's, he's, you know, I mean, the guy's got Grammys on his shelf. He won't ever talk about it. He won't ever name drop. He's there to help you get, help people learn, and he really likes doing it. And they may not have the best equipment, and they may not even have, you know, true studio recording equipment in some instances, but they still run reel-to-reel. So I learned to record on two-inch reel-to-reel. I understand the difference of that, but we also understand how to push it to a digital system as well. And he really focuses on the why and how to apply that in any circumstance versus what I've seen happen with some of the people that come out of the other institutions is they know how to work in the environment that they learned in, but as soon as they get into the field, they're a little bit behind because it's a new piece of gear that they Mm -hmm. don't quite understand and they have to figure out how, okay, well, well, I'm used to this thing, but this doesn't work that way, so how do I, you know, they have to go back and sort of relearn a little bit every time they deal with something new. Cool, so you were really empowered. Yeah. Because at some point, you have to, things change so quickly, you have to stop being afraid of new changes or new equipment. There used to be a time when you could just have your equipment and it would last for 10 years or have your computer set up and that that's it. Like you don't change anything ever again. But you know, there's regular updates to every piece of software now and you want the latest update because you want the latest tools and yeah, you can't really uh, you can't really just know how to do one thing anymore. You got to got to know the method. Exactly. There has to be reasoning behind it and that's the big part of it is, you know, the why. Why am I doing it this way? Why is this important to know? Why is this something that matters? And that answering that question throughout the course of my career has sort of been, you know, one of the things of, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Well, why am I going to do that thing? Well, if I have to get X, Y, and Z lined up in order to reach my goal, well, okay, well, I have to do this in order to do that, but is there a better way to do that? Why am I doing it? Why, why is this the only option for me to do it that way is, is something I'm constantly trying to evaluate. So before I ask you some more uh, questions about specifically some of the jobs you've done, um, can Could you take a look back and tell me what some of the best choices you've made along your career that have allowed you to go in the direction that you've wanted, to get the kind of work that you've wanted? The best decision I ever made in my career, period, uh, was to not have a specific focus. Hmm. Uh, When I started out, I went to San Francisco State as a music major. I was a performance major for bass. Uh, and I started in the program. I found that I didn't like it because I felt like the instructors were teaching you enough not to steal their work. 
That's but, so funny. I've never heard anyone say that. But not enough to actually, you know, it was it was one of those things of okay, we're going to teach you enough technique and enough of this. But like thing. they didn't want you to be better than them. Exactly. They were they were they were teaching because it was a side gig to allow them to perform. Mm. That's what I found. That's what I felt. It, I'm not saying that's the way that it was at San Francisco State. I'm just saying that's how I felt it was at San Francisco State. So I started looking at other options, and that's how I found the audio program. After the audio program. Uh, when I completed the audio program at San Francisco State, it was, okay, well, I'm going to be a studio engineer. And I had interviews for studios to be interns, and I did this and that, but studio internships are hard to come by. And one of the things that I found when I was in the studio program was I didn't like it. Uh, I loved the program in and of itself, but I didn't like studios. I didn't like sitting there tuning a tom drum for 45 minutes. I just It drove me nuts. I didn't... I really liked the mic placement and the mic technique and uh, all those kinds of things that came into it and setting it up. So that's sort of how I got into live sound. And I went from live sound and worked for a bunch of production companies and venues and did all those kinds of things, setting up sound and and, uh, running consoles and uh, working in those environments. And it allowed me to play music on the side. It allowed me to get a better feel for how to work in rooms and understand those things. But over time, it just got to the point where I felt like I was kind of doing the same thing over and over, and I wanted to experience a lot more. And so I just kept opening myself up to more and more opportunities that allowed me to expand my career over time. And I, it's, it's paid dividends for me because I can talk about lots of different environments. I've worked in radio as an engineer and a producer and a board operator. I've worked in a TV environment in college very, very briefly, but enough to understand how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. I've worked in uh, studio situations because of being at San Francisco State and because of recording my own albums. I've worked in live sound in venues and for production companies, so I've set up things both in a shop and in a permanent fixed installation. I've worked for corporate environments. I've like Just opening myself up to every opportunity and saying, I wanted to absorb it all and see sort of how all this all fit together because it's different for every environment. And, you know, I've, I've made some bad decisions. I've been fired from jobs before. It's, you know, it happens. You, you, you have to take that into account that you got to find something that speaks to you. And there, I know amazing studio recording engineers and I know amazing live sound engineers and neither one of them would work in the other environment just because it's compl- that what they enjoy about it is so different. And understanding that and figuring that out over the course of my career has been the best decision. Um, There was no job that I didn't walk away and learn something from. Good connecting the dots. So now I can ask you, um, what is TOA? Because I'd heard of them, but I didn't really know what they were. And then I looked it up online, and I still don't really know. It just seems like they sort of make everything. They make speakers, microphones, intercoms, mixers... Um, so do they have a focus, or are they trying to be like the end-all of audio? TOA International. TOA is a Japanese company that's in its 80th anniversary. They're one of the oldest Japanese uh, electronics manufacturers, okay. actually. They've been around longer than Panasonic, Sony, some of those guys. They've been around a long, long time. TOA is one of the... Uh, they invented... Um, I'm trying, if, Let me see if I can still remember my spiel from when I was working for them. Uh, they invented one, uh, a type of paging horn. Okay. Back in the, I want to say, late 20s, early 30s. 
So when audio was first starting, these guys were some of the first innovators of that. Okay. Uh, TOA invented digital signal processing. Oh. They provided the first commercially available digital signal processing unit in 1986 called the Sayori. Okay. They were one of the first digital console manufacturers in the world in 1990. Wow. Uh, I've actually seen it when I was in Japan getting trained by them one time. So uh, TOA is an audio equipment manufacturer. That's what they're known for in the U.S. And specifically what they're known for in the U.S. is mixer amplifiers. So okay. a single two-rack space unit with modular inputs. So you pick. Uh, so it basically comes to you as... A blank unit, and you pick what you want it to be. Mm. Do you want to have four mic inputs, two line inputs, and it can have a built-in power amplifier to do commercial seventy volt continuing audio, or you can do four ohm output on it as well. Okay, that's what they're mostly known for in the U.S. And those things are bulletproof and have been around for thirty-five years. I mean, TOA <laughs> is they're actually celebrating their fortieth anniversary in the U.S. this year. Okay, um, and. What a lot of people in the U.S. don't know them for is everything else that they do. They do stem to stern audio. They were one of the originators of packet audio transmission over IP. Hmm. Um, the NX100 is the unit that does that, and they've been doing that since the late to uh, the early 2000s. So they've been doing, you know, these guys are they're innovators. They've been doing things before a lot of people, but then everybody else figures out what they did then figures out how to make it better. So a lot of the other manufacturers have sort of... TOA plays leapfrog. They jump ahead of people, and then they sit there for a while, and then other people catch up and pass them, and then they innovate again. And that's just sort of how they do things. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. I have two questions that are a tall order, but I think you can handle them. Okay. Um, there are a lot of things I don't understand about the pro audio industry, and that's why I do the show, mm-hmm. that's why I interview people, that's why I'm talking to you. Two of them are AV integration and trade shows, and I'm going to ask you to give me an overview of each and kind of explain how it fits into my world. Okay. So you're currently a project manager at a place called Integrated Communication Systems. Yes. And I'm not completely ignorant to the situation because I often work as an AV technician, but I still feel like I don't know anything about AV integration. So I think this is important to talk about. Um, I'm sure there are people listening who are thinking, hmm, AV integration, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could work in that field. So could you give me an overview of a project from beginning to end, talk about each of the jobs involved, and from, I guess, from the client's first call to you know, the end where you're getting paid, and then more specifically, what your job entails. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with a job. So typically speaking, the, the thing that a lot of people don't understand, uh, and this is something that I didn't really understand until the last year, was how closely tied the AV integration world is with the construction world. Well, let me rephrase that. I, I understood that the two were tied together and that if there was new construction, there was going to be more AV integration opportunities. I didn't know exactly how detailed and how, how close-knit they were until the last year. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to the client is going to be one of two people, typically. It's going to be either an architect who is putting a building together and wants and is working for 
an, a, a business or it's going to be somebody who already has a building and has an office space. And I'm using that as the example in, because that's a lot of where uh, corporate environments is where you see a lot of AV integration going on these days. Um, so these people will have a need and say, okay, we're putting in a new, we're going to go put in a new meeting room or we're building a new f- facility and we want to put in a new meeting room. Well, we need to have all this AV technology that goes into it. At that point, either the architect itself will call a consultant or the architect will reach out to an electrical integrator who will then reach out to an AV integrator. Because we fall, the AV integration world sort of grew out of the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of tied in with them because we came from the telecom industry. And the telecom industry is built into the IBEW, so it's sort of over the course of time evolved. That's uh, sort of why we're we're grouped into that okay. that facet. So the project always starts with a construction company. The project typically starts with a construction company or a a business owner who wants to add equipment okay. or add uh, functionality to their building, whatever it may be. Uh, and again, this is coming from the commercial side of it because there's also a residential side, which is a completely different animal and beast and there you're looking at architects and you're looking at homeowners so there's you have two different uh, there's a very very distinct line in the sand as to how each of those systems are done mm-hmm. but the equipment that gets used can often be very very similar uh, once that gets done then there's a needs analysis and that can get done either by a pre-sales engineer a project manager or a consultant um, in the world of AV integration, the consultant is typically somebody who's going to go in, work directly with the client, help them understand their needs, because they're coming in as an expert who can say, here's all of the equipment that you want, here's all the standards that need to be applied to make sure that it's met, and they'll put together a system design based on what they feel best suits the application. And then they'll do one of two things with it. Either they'll give it to the consultant, or the consultant will then give it to the end user, and the end user can then say, okay, well, I've worked with this integration firm before, I want them to install it, or they can put it out to bid. Okay, so the consultant might be independent, or they might be with a company like ICS, um, but that's the very first step. They may be independent, and that might The consultant could be, com- it usually is a completely independent entity. Okay. They don't actually physically install anything, they just oversee the implementation of the design that they uh, they do the, they did the needs and needs analysis and they helped the customer understand what it was that they were trying to accomplish and how they could do it with the gear and then they work directly with the AV integrator like ICS however if just uh, you can you don't have to go through a consultant to get this because the AV integrators have the experience and the knowledge in many cases to also do a design build project. So as opposed to just doing the build out, which is what a lot of people think AV integrators are known for, you can also do design build where you're doing the job of the consultant and designing the system based on the needs analysis and then building it. Mm-hmm. So now that we've gotten to a design, either internally as a design build project or externally from a consultant, you go through the process of Ensuring that the design, how the design, how it's all going to connect. Okay, so typically speaking in a corporate environment, and again, just as an example, you're going to see audio, you're going to see video, you're going to see control. Uh, Depending on the AV integrator, you may get lighting, 
But in a corporate environment, typically you're dealing with a commercial lighting system and not all AV integrators work in the commercial lighting. That's typically more of an electrical sort of deal, and so they sort of separate the two. Uh, and then you know, you go through and you say, okay, well, I want... You, if, you're getting a, if you're getting a consultant design, the AV integrator is responsible to then make sure that the consultant design is correct. Are the equipment model numbers up to date? Uh, even when I was working for TOA, one of the things that I found out was consultants sometimes, because they're so busy working with the with the end users and making sure that the the needs analysis are correct, uh, the needs analysis that they're doing is correct, that they're not keeping up to date with modern with model numbers as they shift. So equipment's being discontinued. What's the replacement model? How is this going to shift? How is that going to change? And so. As equipment moves so, so quickly now, in uh, particular, think about things like uh, uh, displays. You know, your 55-inch display from Panasonic is only going to be valid for eight, nine months before they replace it with a new unit for various <laughs> reasons. And so, okay, well, oftentimes this process that I've just explained to this point might be 18 months long. Oh, wow. And so, that, that, and so far, we've just gotten through the consultant and the project manager, right? Yeah. At this point, okay. we're at a need, we've finished the needs analysis, okay. and we're going through the bid. So it's the AV integrator, project manager, pre-sales engineer that are now working together to ensure that the design is correct, and then they put together the pricing for it and they submit that pricing to the end user or to the consultant. If it's a bid situation, if it's a public job. Typically speaking, it's lowest bid wins. So whoever can put the best price on it uh, is going to win the job in a public opportunity. In a private opportunity, it sometimes comes down to an actual design. So you'll see a lot of you'll see an interview process where people are defending their choices that they made in the design. And so when that comes into play, you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to do. Th- I made this choice because, and it just depends on the public versus private sector as to which one you're going to be working in. Mm -hmm. So now that you've gone through that, and at this point, I mean, at this point in time, you're looking at, okay, not only have you decided what display model, you've also displayed the mounts, you've also factored in all all the additional, like, strut and hardware and construction materials that you're going to need to install all of these things. So then you order all the equipment, and you work with the electrical contractor to make sure there's power. You work with the electrical contractor to make sure that ne- any network connections have to be uh, laid out. You work with the end user to make sure that, uh, and you find their network, their head of networking, and their IT department to ensure that any network connections are going to be laid out for you to do that. You work with the general contractor and the architect to make sure that uh, any, you know, uh, one of the things that comes up a lot, particularly with speakers, is an architect may have a specific aesthetic they want to achieve, and if the speaker doesn't match that aesthetic, well, then you got to go find something else that's going to work for it. <laughs> and that may not, and while the aesthetic may not be achieving the thing, well, while the aesthetic for that speaker may not work for the architect, if the architect says that you have to change it, you have to be able to defend why that speaker is going to be valid for intelligibility, for sound pressure level issues. Okay. Like it's it's a constant debate, and typically speaking, the AV integrator is the last person into the situation. Mm. So we're constantly sort of being backed up by every other trade. 
We also work with uh, furniture manufacturers because in corporate environments we're drilling things in tables and you know we're putting boxes in tables to make sure that you know we have the connectability to get to the projector or the screen or whatever it may be. And all these things come into play. So now you're now you're interacting with all the other trade organizations to make sure that the project is going to come together. And then you have all the equipment there. You your field team goes out and installs it all. So let me pause for a second. So we did um, consultant at the beginning. All the stuff we just talked about was mainly handled by the project manager. And now we're actually going to the field where you have the installers. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, and it depends on the company. In my company for ICS. Uh, the project manager does project management install. Uh, it does uh, pr- uh, project manager in ICS will do project management, engineering, bidding. Like it'll do all of these things. Dep- in other companies, the bidding might be handled by a sales department. The design may be handled by an engineering department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then project management won't even come up until the point where you've already you're starting to order the equipment and they're scheduling people to make sure that the field staff is going to be on schedule to meet the number of hours that you've put into the bid. So it depends on the company as to where all of these come into play. But in ICS, the project manager is kind of an end all be all handling engineer uh, they do engineering, they'll do project management and they'll do sales. Wow. So ICS is kind of unique in that respect. So now we've gotten into the field and who, who's working in the field? Field, uh, this depends on whether or not you work for a union shop or whether or not you work for a non-union shop. If you work for a union shop, you have to be part of the Electrical Brotherhood, uh, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union. And then you're pulling cable and you're, you're, t- you're talking about your basic uh, field technicians. <coughs> Excuse me. Guys that will pull cable, they'll hang displays, they'll hang speakers. That's what you're talking about in the field. And that's where a lot of people start out in the AV integration industry is just working in the field environments. They're, you know, that's, they're getting hands-on with the equipment. They're uh, experiencing what it's like to interconnect all these things. They're soldering cables. They're terminating cables. And then once all that is installed, now you get to the programmers who then come in on the back end and program all of the equipment based on the environment. How to, and this is where the project manager is working with the end user and the consultant again to go based on the needs analysis of how do they want the equipment to function. So they chose this equipment for a specific reason because maybe it has a certain feature, maybe it works in a certain way. So the programmer has to work with the project manager, the end user, the consultant, whatever combination thereof to understand how they have to set this equipment up and program it for that environment to function in that way. Mm-hmm. So they'll program the control system, the audio system, the video system, the lighting system, uh, which these days control systems can integrate with lighting, fire alarm, shades, like all of this sort of interplays. And once it's programmed, then you have, then the consultant will come back, punch the system to make sure that it meets. The needs, so they'll have a punch list of everything and say, "Okay, well, did this do what? Did this? Did you do this part of the design?" Which is what I said had to be done, and they'll just run down their list of what they wanted the system to be, make sure that it met those needs, and then they'll turn it over to the end user. Nice. Okay, so just as an overview, I I think I heard that we have consultant at the beginning, then there's the project manager in your case that does a lot of this communication. Um, then there are the people who are installing it in the field, mm-hmm. there are the programmers, and then um, 
the consultant comes back just to check everything in the end. Pretty much. Boom! That took forever. Um, but I think it's that was really important. I think uh, it might be helpful for myself if I made some sort of infographic and then yeah. I'll put it on the site. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's... Tell me... I mean, that was sort of... That was sort of dry. I just wanted everybody to sort of understand what's going on there for, and for myself well, in particular. Sure. But, but tell me about the well, interesting that didn't even factor, of your job. Well, and that didn't even factor in the, you know, in the, other, uh, the other companies that have sales guys that are going out and you know, beating the ground trying to find project opportunities where they can do the design build. Uh. And then they bring it back to a local in-house engineer who will do the job as the consultant. So it's like you still you have that other model where, again, we're in, our comp- in, in ICS, we're handling sales engineering, project management, all on ourselves, and then it goes to the programmers and field staff. But in another company, that could be five different guys as opposed to three. Cool. Well, so again, for people who are listening who might be interested in this kind of work, tell me about what your favorite parts of the job are. For me, it's the puzzles. I I like... um, In the design process. In the design process. I like putting things together. I like... Uh, understanding one of the things that comes up for me right now because I'm still pretty new is I don't have a lot of clients yet uh, because ICS has been around for 30 plus years well kind of we're about a 10 year old company but we grew out of a different company okay. uh, and so most of the people that work for ICS used to work for a previous company which was around for 30 years mm-hmm. so it's we have very established people that work there I don't have a lot of personal clients yet, so my most of my work goes as uh, bid work. So what I get is I get a design from a consultant. My job is to analyze that design and put together a bid saying, okay, well, this is the equipment that you wanted. Let me put all the other little pieces in there and how long it's going to take to install it and give you a number as to what it's going to do. So I get to look at somebody else's design and say, well, why would you do that? Because if you're doing it this way, you're going to have this problem and you have to take this into account here. And so I get to sort of manipulate and bid to what they wanted, but also try and add in little things here and there. But when I get to do my own designs, sometimes I get to say, okay, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? Let me put together the right puzzle pieces to make this happen. Okay. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. And then that sort of ties into working with a client and helping them understand how all of these things work. Uh, I had an opportunity once to work on a high school football field to put together a design for it. And a high school football field for a sound system doesn't seem like, you know, for some people it's like, oh, okay, it's just, you know, they're going to announce what yard line they're on, they're going to be some music for cheerleaders. But there's a lot of little intricate things that go into it. And when I was talking to the client for that opportunity, I was able to help them understand, well, this is really important to know because. I need to know this because. How is this going to work? Because. And you started to see the eyes widen. It was like, wow. For me, I was looking at it as nobody had ever taken the time to explain to them why this information was important for them to know. Hmm. And that goes back into what I loved about TOA so much was I got to teach and educate and inform. So those kinds of those are the two things that I really like is helping people understand why our industry is valuable and why what the concerns we have are to make sure that they get the most uh, the highest quality system for their needs while simultaneously putting together all the puzzle pieces because it's like uh, a lot of people think that our equipment is interchangeable but it's not but for a perfect example let's look at 
audio digital signal processors. There's probably a dozen companies out there that make them, but they all have slight nuances as to why you would want to use one or another in a given situation. And understanding the differences between the two and being able to pick the right one for the application, as opposed to just saying, well, this is the one that I always use and I'm always going to use it. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Since I haven't been to any trade shows, really, I mean, I've been to AES a couple of times, but only kind of walked through the exhibit floor to look at the new toys, and that's fun. But um, if you could sort of make the case for why someone like me or why you like to go to trade shows, what you've gotten out of it, what's beneficial for people like us? Sure. Uh, trade shows, there's, I mean, there's dozens. Well, I guess, uh, I, I guess I should ask more specifically then, the ones that you've been to, what have been your yeah. positive experiences? I've gone to Infocom since 2008. One of the things that it provides more than anything else is education. There's training courses that go on for seven days. So you have three days worth of training prior to the show, three-day training courses. Well, what kind of stuff can I learn? Uh, it'll teach you full AV integration systems to, for, their cert, uh, for the Infocom certifications. Uh, like I carry a certification at the end of my name, CTS, Certified okay. Technical Specialist. They also have CTSD, which is based in design, or CTSI, which is based in integration. And those certifications have helped you get work? Or you did it just for Infocom yourself? Infocom claims so you they do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, the CTS for me, I got it specifically because you have to maintain your certification by getting 30 renewal credits every three years. Okay. I was teaching courses for TOA that carried renewal units, and so it was one of those things of it looked, it was, it was almost an image thing of, Ha- me having the CTS as an educator providing renewal units was sort of something that it would look better if I had it sure. than if I didn't okay. since I was teaching that way. Um, but it's it, what CTS does is it provides a great baseline of understanding. Mm-hmm. And Infocom is, is really pushing the CTS right now. And it's a great program to provide baseline where the AV industry is having a little uh, a little argument over it these days as to whether or not how valid it is to what they actually understand because for the CTS it's a multiple it's 100 multiple choice questions there's no practical it's you you can read a book you can study you can memorize answers there's no you know just because you have a CTS you could be I've been in the industry for 10 for over 10 years before I got my CTS other people have been in it for 10 months and they've got their CTS hmm. so so it might not get you a job, but the education is definitely valuable. The education is very, very valuable. Okay. And a lot of people, and Infocom has done studies that show, you know, if you have your CTS, it can help you get a higher rate of pay because it shows that you, it's a demonstration that you have this knowledge. Okay. And that's good. But just because you see two people with CTS, don't automatically assume that they know the same amount of information. Okay. But that's one of the big things with Infocom is it provides a great educational opportunity. Networking, you get to meet people from all, not just all over the U.S., all over the world, and see all of the new opportunities in gear. And some of this is vaporware. You may never see it see the light of day. It may never be sold. But you're going to see the things before they're available in the world and understand where technology is headed. Uh, the most recent article on my website was talking about AVB versus HD-based T and the argument between them, 
well, this is an argument that's going on with the entire Infocom community right now as to which standard they should be paying more attention to uh, for and, and those kinds of things. So, so this is the place to do it. Infocom is a big place to do it because the HD Base T Alliance is there, the Avenue Alliance, which is what's championing AVB, is there, and they have booths helping people understand what it is these two standards are, as well as you know, they're, so they're intermingling amongst all the manufacturers as well as just providing separate education courses. So, and this year uh, in 2014, when I go to Infocom in Las Vegas, I'm actually going to be teaching a course as an independent instructor. Oh, what are you teaching? I'm going to be teaching audio DSP fundamentals. So, on the second day of the show, I'm going to have an hour, hour and a half course, helping people understand audio DSP, because it was something that I felt was lacking in the Infocom program. You see a lot of manufacturers teach courses that's based on their product-specific things, but you don't see a lot of general knowledge courses, mm-hmm. in particular about audio. Uh, and a lot of times it's because Synodcon, uh, S-Y-N-A-U-D-C-O-N, uh, the Browns, um, husband and wife, they do an amazing job of teaching audio courses for Synodcon, but they don't always teach at Infocom. Mm. And because Info, uh, Infocom is one chance where a lot of people send their techs to get a training, to get certification in manufacturers or get their education for the year by not having a larger audio uh, offering in courses, it's sort of, again, it goes back into the idea that I was saying earlier about how audio education is sort of falling behind in the, in the A versus V uh, portion of it. Well, do you want to make a quick ad for your course then for anyone who might be coming to Infocom? Sure. Um, what they might be able to learn, why it might be interesting? I'm going to be talking about the fundamentals of audio DSP. It's going to be what are the elements involved? You know, what is a compressor? What is an EQ? Why are these things important? How, do the, how are they used in signal flow? Uh, proper order of elements, uh, understanding what the difference is when you move in an open architecture format. Why would a compressor go before an EQ or after an EQ in certain circumstances? Uh, and talking about proper gain structure and how all of these things come into play when programming a system to get proper gain structure so you can avoid, uh, so you can keep consistent levels and intelligible levels as well as prevent distortion. Hmm. So that's what I'm going to be talking about in my course. Cool. And that is uh, Thursday, the second day of the show, and the course starts at 10.30 a.m. In the AV integration industry, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that what happens in your home also drives what's happening in your business. Hmm. Um, And so paying attention to what's going on in your house when there's two trade shows that'll do that, which is CES and CEDIA, uh, C-E-D-I-A, those are the two kind of home uh, home shows. So your consumer electronics show and then your home integration show. And those two things become uh, important for the commercial side and the pro side because when you're dealing with AV integration, if you don't pay attention to how people are interacting with technology in their home, you are going to be at a disadvantage because how they interact with it in their home is how they want to start interacting with it in their businesses. There's differences, but... People have a comfort level with what they're doing in their home. And we're starting, and so typically speaking, if you see something take off in your house, they're going to start requesting for it in their business. So HD technology, when it was like, uh, when you started seeing HD screens really being adopted in the home environment, 
that's when it started becoming really important in the corporate environment. Interesting. And so the, a lot of instances you'll find that home, uh, home technology will help drive commercial technology. I know you can tell me about the difference between 4K and Ultra, but more specifically, I'm wondering why there are these newer technologies, but in most of my day-to-day work as an AV tech, I'm mostly still just using analog video. Long five-wire runs, long VGA runs, and I'm wondering if that's because, um, you know, the kind of digital cables, fiber optic stuff you would need is, is more expensive or harder to use or just not as available yet? Nope. The answer is source device. Oh. Because VGA was such an adopted source device on PCs, and typically speaking in presentation and, and live environments, right. you're Most still PCs using... have a VGA output still. Yep. Okay. And that is slowly going away. Okay. Um, a lot of people are very comfortable with VGA, but it, we're seeing the VGA ports start to disappear for an HDMI port or a Thunderbolt port on, on the Apple. Um, there isn't... You also see DisplayPort. You also see Mini DisplayPort as the new digital ones as well. And and unfortunately, it's like because each PC manufacturer is using a different one, and because HDMI has a cost that is associated with it to use that type of a connector. Like there's there's all these things that come into play as to what's going to be the next one. Uh, what's the connecting port? And so what's driving it isn't necessarily the cost of the cable. It's what is available to get an output on. I see. So as long as VGA output is still the most common output on a laptop or whatever the machine is, then that will still be the most common transmission. Uh, for a lot of environments, yeah, and slowly over time. And it's, and it's, it's vanishing. You're seeing it disappear. But because it's such a trusted port and it's something that people are so familiar with and it's so ingrained in them, it's, you know, I'll still, a lot of my designs these days still come in with, okay, well, I need to connect to a display. So how am I going to get to it from my PC? All right, well, here's an HDMI port, and here's a uh, VGA. So basically, you're going to get one of each. That way, you can connect either way that you feel comfortable. And HDMI is adaptable. So you'll get DisplayPort to HDMI. And because so because you're using or Thunderbolt to HDMI, and so you're going into those kinds of instances where you just use an adapter and you just run it into the HDMI port on the display, mm-hmm. because the HDMI port is becoming the most common display uh, common input port on a display mm. and allows you to send both audio and video over a single well, connector. I thought we could get uh, kind of deep into audio measurement stuff. You posted an article about audio measurement and yes. uh, so I was going to take this opportunity to give you a hard time about it. Um, <laughs> so I want to bring up something that I know we're both going to disagree on a little bit or maybe we'll agree in the end. We'll sure. see. But um, I think we'll all be better for it. So. Exhibit A is in your article called Have You Measured Your Room Recently? You mm-hmm. write in one of the comments, the act of measuring a room is an attempt to get a flat frequency response from your speakers. Exhibit B. In my interview with Dave Swallow, he says, I don't like measurement systems because they can't tell you what's good. And I think that's really common. He misunderstands the tool's purpose because of this idea has been spread. I'm sorry. He misunderstands the tool's purpose because this idea has been spread that audio measurement tools have emotions. Like, they can tell you what's good and bad. And this makes people frown when I pull out my analyzer when I'm setting up for an event. Uh, So to combat this, I think we need to be spreading the idea that you don't use an audio analyzer to make something sound good. You use it to make it sound the same. So if you in particular 
want to draw flat lines, that's great. And then you use the audio analyzer to measure and draw those everywhere you want. So that's your personal goal, I feel like, and not the goal of the tool. And that's my only criticism. The thing with analyzing a room and a live sound situation is speakers have characteristics. They have a frequency response curve. The frequency response curve of a speaker is not flat. They have peaks, they have valleys. If you look at the manual for any speaker from any manufacturer, it will tell you the measured uh, frequency response and EQ adjustments that you are, quote-unquote, supposed to apply to that speaker in order to give it a flat response Hmm. based on what the manufacturer measured it in an anechoic chamber. So they measured that speaker's response with using pink noise and says, okay, I've got peaks and valleys in these areas, thereby you need to make adjustments to the speaker at these specific frequencies in order to get a flat frequency response. That's fantastic to get a flat frequency response from that speaker. It also doesn't matter when you put it into a live sound environment Mm -hmm. because the room is going to have coloring characteristics as well. The goal of measuring your system is to figure out how those peaks and valleys of that speaker are responding in accordance with the peaks and valleys of the acoustic environment of a room. You want to see how the room is reacting and apply any acoustic treatment, if it's a fixed environment or if it's a portable environment, any processing to create an environment where you are not coloring the sound. Because... The goal is to be able to hear from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz in any given search, uh, in a given situation. What you want to do is try and get the flattest frequency response possible. That way, the frequencies that are being performed on stage, so let's say it's a band environment, well, the bass is going to be in a certain frequency range, the guitar is going to be in another, the vocals are going to be in another, and that's just how it's going to play out. You want to be, not be coloring that. If you have a node in the frequencies of that room that you haven't attuned for, it, let's say 400 hertz, which is a very common place, particularly in parallel wall circumstances, then you already know, okay, at 400 hertz, I'm going to have a boost in frequencies because that's where I have a node. Great. Well, if you haven't attuned for that by measuring your room and verifying that that's where the frequency issue is, now you've, you've colored the sound coming out of your system because of the acoustic environment. So you're measuring to account for what frequencies are the speakers producing at peaks and valleys, based on uh, whatever peaks and valleys that they just acoustically have as a physical box, as well as what peaks and valleys the room will account for as well. So a measurement system is not designed to make it better. It's designed to make sure that you are hearing things evenly. As opposed, it's not going to tell you what's good and bad. It's just allowing you to create an environment where all frequencies can be heard equally. So this this is where my disagreement is with you, is that um, you could also use that analyzer to make them uneven if you wanted to, if that were your preference. If you wanted to, sure. I don't know why so you'd want to. <laughs> that's Exactly. So I think we agree, is that you would come in and say, let me help you make this flat, and someone else might come in and say, let me help you make this tilted. But sure. you can use the same tool. It's the same tool to be used in either respect. Okay. Whenever I've gone into a room, my goal is to try and give them a flat response. That way I'm not, cu- because think about it in a fixed installation. If you go into a theater, you don't know what they're going to be doing in that theater for the next 365 days. Mm. 
Okay, they could have a DJ, they could have a live band, they could have a presentation. Well, if you have tuned it to a colored system and you've unbalanced it and given them more low end, well, now your speakers could potentially going to be muffled. Your dance performance, say they wanted to do, say they had tap. Well, a lot of times for a tap session, you'll put boundary microphones on the front of the stage. Okay, great. Well, now you may have frequency response issues because, and you may have feedback issues because you've colored the sound to boost a certain level of frequencies. That's a really good point. I was mainly thinking about things like working on plays where you come in and you talk to the sound designer and you talk about, to them about what kind of sound they want in the room. And, not, and so it's just for that one specific event. Exactly. Okay. So for a specific event, you may want to color it based on what their needs are. But if it's a fixed environment where... That you don't, where what they do from day to day is going to be very different. You want to try and get it as flat as possible. That way, you're not coloring because you don't know what's going to be in there, especially if you're not the technician on site. If you're there providing the system as an AV integrator, you want to leave them with a system that's flexible and capable of handling any of their needs, not what, not saying, okay, well, this is the only thing you're ever going to do in here. Now, if this is the only thing, now in a live sound situation where that's the only, like, say it was a DJ and it's always going to be a DJ. You can maybe make some adjustments that are going to be coloring based on the DJ. But again, well, there's so many should... different types of electronic music that you need to be careful of that as well. I think every other job that you're saying you do, like you show up and you say, let me see what you have. Let me see how I can help you solve your problems. It's so it's, a, it's the same thing with measurement. I think you show up and you say, tell me what you want to do with this system. Needs analysis. Right. So I think that's the thing that scares people and why Dave Swallow was saying, uh, let's not get invo- let's not get too involved with the measurement system because he's afraid that you're going to come in and say I'm going to make your system flat and that's all I'm going to do. Instead, it should start with a conversation of what do you you know what do you want what kind of system you want? Yeah, that's exactly it. Sound design. You can follow Josh Srago's work on Twitter at J Srago. That's J S R A G O on Google Plus and on his website, soundreason.org. Josh, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it rate on it. iTunes or send it to a friend. Sound Design.